Welcome to Fork Pull Merge Push. This is a show about topics developers obsess over with hosts Escolati and guest engineers from around the world. What happens when you put a group of friends together, all interested in learning new totally unknown things and willing to start longer term projects from the scratch? Today we are going to talk about, among other things, Game Boy hacking and writing your own statically typed Lisp. In the studio with me are Tain Kersies and David Vasquez, who have founded a group called Amsterdam Hackers and who both work at Reactor's Amsterdam office. David introduced himself to programming language design by first learning Emacs and Lisp. Tain having a start back then with PHP, has combined his two passions for drinking coffee and writing code into a software development career. The rest is of course history. David and Tyne are also constantly looking for new colleagues to join our Amsterdam team, so if you are interested, please do visit reactor.com careers. How are you doing, gentlemen? Great, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, nice to have you here. Tyne, it's actually quite fun. I didn't actually start programming as a kid. I'm a bit latecomer to the party, but uh, I think that I had a similar start with you, starting with PHP and drinking coffee. Yeah, it's the, it's the gateway drug to, to programming, I think. Yeah, yeah, I remember the... Was it the lamp stack or something back then What that was like the latest and the greatest? Yeah, which that was in, what the... Which involved the PHP part, at, at least. Yes, yes, PHP and, and Apache and MySQL. Yeah, all the best. Yeah. But hey, to get us started, what is Amsterdam Hackers really? Yeah, so 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 Amsterdam Hackers is a is basically a group of people who who want to like work on interesting things and and kind of you know tickle tickle our own like curiosity without thinking about um, how how valuable is this or how useful is this project. Yeah, it's like our playful and recreational approach to programming, so to say. Okay, so the idea is to, or the mission is to like not to be able to produce something that's maybe worth value to other people, but rather like create something just out of passion or out of like the joy of learning. Exactly. So how did you two decide to form this kind of group? Was there some kind of uh, like lack of groups or how did you meet originally? Yeah, I think we, we, we met like like an early, like was it early 2017 and, and, and like by, by the time it was 2018, we were a bit bored with the sort of like day-to-day programming in, in you know, JavaScript and React um, and, and, and making, making like, you know, business, like business value with codes rather than, than kind of really appeasing our interests. And then like, like we, we figured like we could like team up and, and work on some like, like projects, like after, after hours, uh, just some interesting projects to, to like, um, discover new things and, and learn new new technologies basically yeah like back then i th- remember that time was working on a cheap AT, uh, emulator and that was pretty fun and we wanted to level up a little bit that and we were thinking what would be like the next uh, thing that we could try and we started looking into the game boy uh, hardware and how it works and we decided to do something with with it yeah, and then then like basically, you know, as as all hobby projects go, they kind of like fail after the first two weeks. So we decided to kind of keep the momentum going and, and and just like meet up every week after work, uh, since we were already working in the same office. It was kind of like 
easy to uh, you know like like push push each other forward and hold each other sort of accountable to to put in the efforts basically. Um, and then, like once I got going, like it was kind of fun to you know work on kind of rediscover like some some passion uh, for for programming like like challenging things. It got more and more exciting as we were going, we were deeper into the projects as well. Uh, the beginning, everything is quite superficial, but I think it's more fun when you learn something very deeply. And it's something that we were missing in other kind of projects or like hackathons or like weekend projects. So we tend to do long-term, really deep technical projects. Uh, I appreciate that you have decided to start tackling this kind of longer term deep technical stuff instead of weekend hackathons, which are of course also very good things. Yeah, uh, I think like like we we, we eventually like uh, like our, our first projects were very much like long term stuff, but but I think also like eventually we kind of discovered that these like you know weekend hackathon type of work, like maybe not in the weekends, but but kind of these like one one or two session sort of work is also quite interesting to other people uh of course not everyone puts in the time as much much as we want to put in it uh you know not, not everyone has uh has like four four hours per per evening like time to to hack on on on, on you know whatever it is so these uh i, I think like these these the short stints also have their value in in you know making making things more approachable to people with a bit more restrictions on time and and, and like allowing them to discover stuff as well mm-hmm. um I think like these, these, these like uh, you know, building building your own React or or, or or databases are are kind of like an example of that. Yeah, like like for example, some of the dynamics that we we would use is we would gather a few people uh, in the office, we would work as Stein said on a React clone for like three or four days, and then we would probably continue together or in a smaller group and go deeply into like how actually React works internally or other kind of like a bit more advanced topics. Yeah, I think that, for example, the opening episode we had on Harmaya, which is a front-end framework alternative to React, it has kind of similar story. It started as kind of a learning project, but then uh, evolved around having other people and a bit longer-term perspective in the end. So you mentioned other people. So is there just the two of you, basically, or do you have some other people belonging to the group? I think uh, I think like like it's uh, it's 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 the core core team is probably David and I, um, and then and kind of like featuring some of our colleagues like every now and then, um, but it's a bit like uh, like like I said earlier like not everyone has the time to really like uh, start big projects like you know in evenings basically, so we 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 tend to you know kind of like gradually move to this model where we. Would have some like long-term projects, uh, you know, that, that spans a couple of months, um, if, if if not year, uh, where we really like try to create like a sort of a final product, and and then like in between, kind of trying to extract these like standalone sessions for people who, you know, want to like jump in every now and then, and and just want to maybe spend one evening, you know, trying to understand like okay, how do hooks work in React or or. You know, how, what are the challenges of, of database rights, stuff like that. We have had some very interesting, uh, like nice moments where we were around seven people around a single screen doing more programming, like everybody just commenting on each other code. And yeah, it was a really interesting 
do some kind of public appearances. Of course, not now since the pandemic and all, all that, but before that, there were like meetups and that kind of stuff. So were you like present on those events? We, uh, well, we all, we have a website, first of all, and we have a GitHub uh, organization that you can check all of our projects. And as a result of the, our first project, we gave a presentation in the Forsten conference in Brussels about the, the Game Boy project that we did. And we will probably talk more about that later. About the Game Boy thing. So I think that it was the first project you had or, or like a longer term project. And yes. you several times already mentioned it. So can you maybe open up a bit about it? What was it about? The Game Boy is an interesting thing and it's my like childhood most prized possession I, I like owned when I was 10 years mm. old. Yeah. I think I think that's like like one of the one of the key things of it. It's like that like nostalgic value is is, is very high in this project. Um I think uh, I think like the, the kind of summary of the project like in, in, in one line is it's a fourth cross compiler for the Game Boy. Um which on itself is, is, is probably not very, you know, useful and then I doubt that many people are you know, searching Google for for this thing, uh, but I guess the, the interesting the interesting part here is, is kind of the story and, and kind of the development process of this project. So, like like David said, like we started with this like Chip Eight uh, project. It's a kind of like a very low level low level sort of programming uh, project that takes probably one day to implement if you're if you're quick enough, um, and it doesn't really like scale scale much from there. So. Like going to the next next sort of level of, of Game Boys, we figured like you know we can look at these retro retro consoles and 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 like try and do something with those uh, whatever it is. They're big enough to really spend some time uh, on it. Probably takes a couple of weeks or or even a month. Um, but uh, but also like not like too complex with you know multiprocessor uh, structures and and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I think w- one of the motivations of and why we picked the Game Boy is we wanted to be able to understand the whole system ourselves from the very end, uh, from the beginning to the very end. And the Game Boy is a really good device to do that. But additionally, the second part of the project using Forth, it's also intended towards that. So we did not use any existing tooling. We did not use any C compilers for this project. But instead, we decided to write our own language for the Game Boy. So to have a full and complete vision about the system. Sounds very complicated. Uh, maybe before like going into the process of like how do you actually manage to pull this all off, could you tell me what's fourth? I did some background checks, of course, and Wikipedia tells me that it's a programming language 51 years old already. Are we talking about the same thing? Definitely. We are. Yeah, so fourth is a really, really simple programming language. Um, it's probably the simplest programming language that you can imagine. Um, there is no syntax. You don't need to learn any rules. There is no like curly braces, parentheses. There are basically two different elements in the language. You have numbers and you have words. Uh, they are separated by spaces. So a fourth code will just be like a this sequence of words one after each other. And the characteristic is uh, the numbers are pushed into a stack, and the words will act on that stack. Uh, the language is called concatenative because the meaning of the program is just a s- sequence of meanings of the words, right? So, because like, there's no no structure in, in yeah. the program apart from what you like create yourself. Yes. Yeah. 
Okay, but uh, so this important thing is because there is this lack of a structure, it makes very simple language to implement. Like you don't need to learn about parsers, you don't need to learn like classic theory of compilers or anything. You can basically do the implementation of the language in one day. And that's why that's why we went that route. How did you discover the existence of such a language? Did you do some research or did you by chance just know it beforehand? I had some experience with it before. Uh, I think I first learned about it because of some friend's recommendation about like this this very weird alien and all language. Um, and after that, I played with it a little bit. So I guess that was a little bit my contribution to this project and time contributed more like the Game Boy. So we tried to put together those two interests into a single project. So you said that you started from the scratch doing all this stuff. What does it actually involve implementing a GB fourth kind of thing? Yeah, like like there was a lot of um, like it, it's a pretty old console. I think like it turned thirty like recently. Uh, so kind of documentation wise, there is a lot of like things you can find about it. it's like both kind of leaks, official documentation, and and, and unofficial community documentation. So there there is a good starting point of of understanding, you know, what what do different things do and how does it work. Um, but there's also a lot of like tooling available already. Um, like like David said, like we didn't use like a C compiler because you know you can pretty much write a, a C game and, and make it compile for for Game Boys, and it does a lot of work for you uh, without you really understanding like what's going on in the backgrounds. Um, so like what we want to do is, is is really start with the the basics of like you know how how do you even get something visible on the screen? Like what what does it even mean to get something on the screen in the first place? Like How's the memory maps? These sort of things. Um, so imagine that somebody would give you a Game Boy, and you have no manual. You don't know how that works. You don't have a compiler for that machine. How can you make anything useful out of it? I wouldn't know where to start, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> at least not for a long while. Yeah, I guess like like the the there was another piece of info that we did use, and it was like an existing game um, that that speeds things up a little bit. Uh, and in our case, it was kind of like a Hello Worlds um, example. So just a binary that that would print like Hello Worlds on the on the Game Boy screen, and you know you can kind of flash it on a cartridge and, and see that it works, or or use an emulator. Um, and then you have this like uh, what is it like 32 kilobytes file that that you know what it does, uh, but you don't know really how it does that. And like our, our first first step kind of started there in like let's see if we can decompile this uh, ROM uh, from scratch. So, you know, the raw, like kind of deciphering what the raw bytes mean. Um, of course, using using some like documentation to, you know, not get stuck like endlessly in, in, in understanding what a specific value means, but, you know, just one by one deciphering the bytes and, and slowly understanding like, oh, this part is the, the header of the cartridge and, and, and this is the indication of it being a you know, a uh, classic Game Boy game, not a color Game Boy game, and like, and so forth. Yeah, there was color version, of course. I forgot about that, too. So you practically, like, had to open the ROM with some hex editor and just go from there. Exactly. So looking at the hexadecimal output of the ROM, luckily it was small enough. Is well, That was the first few days of it. Uh, so our approach was to firstly make our application to write this ROM literally as the output, right? So 
game, our compiler was just compiling one single game, but it was correct. So what we would then do is we could start refactoring that. We could start separating the header into different variables, moving things around. So our program was not writing the hexadecimal, like literally, but the different sections. So that was kind of adding this structure to the flat uh, list of hexadecimal uh, digits. And that would allow us to start understanding and playing with it because it would be very easy, for example, to try a change. It would also make the feedback loop really fast because we wouldn't have to even run the game on the Game Boy. We could just check that the output was still the same as the original game. How did you end up from examining the ROM image to actually creating this kind of force-based development kit? What was the next steps after this initial like discoverings? So the, the, the first steps were kind of like abstracting the you know sequences of bytes into uh, force words, basically. And then kind of like refactoring and, and kind of bring the abstraction level a little bit up um, in, in in the sense that like after starting with, with just a bunch of bytes, like the you know first version of our compiler that looked a bit more like a actual compiler, uh, you know, consisted of words that would say like, I don't know, cartridge header, uh, or like write cartridge header, uh, writes checksum, uh, writes, writes, uh, you know, codes, things like this. So you kind of get an overview of like what each part does. Um, but then still you end up with, with parts in your code being just plain bytes um, or like plain, you know, hexadecimal numbers. Uh, and at some point you, you have to kind of decode what does that mean. So like the, the kind of first, first step of actually getting into codes, I guess, was kind of deciphering all of the, uh, all of the hexadecimal numbers into opcodes and, and write a simple assembler. Uh, and then you can, you know, it's uh, it's not very very like complex to do. It's just like a lot of work. Just every every number you see, you translate it with a translation table into like a, a mnemonic, and um, you know that that way you kind of like write codes instead of just the binary. Of course, we we went a little bit further and and, and didn't just literally translate it like that, but <clears throat> tried to make something a bit nicer. Of course, initially you only need to do this assembler for the only few operations that the example game had, right? You don't have to cover the whole CPU. So it was not that much work. I keep imagining myself, how would I start with all the stuff you have made? And it seems really something that I, I wouldn't have the capability, at least right from the start to do. What kind of knowledge do you think you needed to have before starting this project? This is very low level stuff you are making. I mean that it's totally different from the stuff we write at work, what we get paid for, which is so high level web programming for most of us. So mm. so did you like know this stuff beforehand or did you just discover, okay, now I need to learn how to write a known assembler and then just like start doing it? I mean, you, you have a little bit of experience, right, from other things, but we didn't know anything specific about the project. Uh, we were definitely really uncomfortable about it, right? That's key to it if you want to learn something. Um, we just went and tried. We could have failed. We could have done another project. We could have not finished the project at all, but it did work. But you have to try first for that. The core idea is, as you said, really is to do all it by yourself, like really everything, literally, almost. Yeah, yes. and, it, and kind of like it helps to just think of like what is the next possible step you can take, right? So like seeing a, seeing a bunch of numbers on the screen and, and being told like this is a computer program, like 
you know, figure figure out what it does. It's like it's it's a bit intimidating, you know, if you put it like that. But you know, the the, the only thing you can do is is try and make sense of it. Like, what does the first ten bytes mean? What do the next ten bytes mean? And 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 you can kind of like figure out like what those things do, and then kind of discover this like structure in it. And at some point, you you like might see patterns even if you're lucky. Um, you know, the further you go, the more abstract things become. Yeah. So after we got like the basic game working. I think it was time to explore a bit other options, right? What else can we do with this? And one of the things we tried, of course, we changed Hello World to Hello Reactor. And, and that failed because somewhere else there was a counter of how, uh, what was the length of the, of the string that we, it was being printed. Um, but yeah, you debug it and learn. And slowly we're abstracting more and more at, until at the point where we were not compiling just the Hello World anymore, but you could actually write your own applications or little games for the Game Boy. And we continue adding some libraries to make it a bit easier. And I think in the end, the final moment where we started like seeing how powerful this was, we ported an existing game that was written for Ford that is called Sokoban. It's this game about like pushing boxes into like some squares where they had to be. And it was originally written for the DOS operating system. And we managed to run that on the Game Boy. That was like very, very uh, pleasing result. Sounds like you really cannot do stuff like this as part of a hackathon lasting for maybe a couple of days. And you definitely need more time. So can you put it together for me? Like what was the actual time frame you had to use? I think when we started, we were thinking, you know, Game Boy, Game Boy, this is like complex, but also simple enough. So about a month should should be usable, you know, but uh, I think we spent it like probably six months in the end, like to get something that kind of resembles what we have now. Um, and then and once kind of the core was, was finished, like we kind of continued like a bit like on the side, not super, super like a- actively anymore, but kind of started adding adding more libraries like uh, I, I remember at some point we we have a you know music library to like play some musical notes uh, and these things kind of came way later so maybe the total time frame was like up to a year or so but um, I think in the, in the first six months we we managed to get the Sokoban game running which is probably like the kind of proof that yes we successfully ported forth to a Game Boy did you receive external help in some phases of the process of porting that game or whether like other people involved besides you too? Yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's actually a, a funny story there in, in, in that we were trying to, uh, you know, get a bit deeper into some documentation and, and then kind of understand better some like glitches uh, that, that would occur in, in, in this hardware. And, and basically like all the documentation we found like was like pointing to to this like one guy who was very into uh, like decompiling uh, Game Boys, like the hardware side of things, and then kind of understanding like how do every like how does every opcode actually behave under different different circumstances, and uh, like we, we we went to check the guy out, and and we noticed that he's actually living in Helsinki, and uh, don't you don't you like <laughs> didn't you expect it? It's like someone working working with us at Reactor as well, so <laughs> it was. Uh, Jonas Javanainen. Exactly. That's a really funny story. I think that everybody listening to this podcast should really check out the GB4 GitHub repository. And we are, of course, going to put all the links to the show notes 
for your convenience. So practically there is like fourth toolkits for the Game Boy and implementation of fourth that you can run on it and emulate a terminal there. So pretty interesting stuff and totally different from something at least we normally use or, or do at our work. But uh, how did you manage the project? It's like six months, as you said, to accomplish the porting of the game. But then there's like so much stuff apparently going on that you need to manage it somehow. Jira. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I, I think it was very ad hoc uh, at the time, right? Like. We uh, like if you if you work with two people and and, and kind of meet up. I think at at the at the peak we were meeting up like at least twice a week, if if not more. Um, you know, you, you kind of like know where you're at and, and you kind of know what the next step should be probably. So, like we didn't do didn't do much management. Um, I think like simple like pull request whenever one of us made something big to make sure that the other person like knows what's what's going on basically like. That was kind of sufficient for that. What did you decide to do next after putting your hours into GB4th, which is kind of low level? So were there something else on your mind that you would like learn or accomplish? We, we did quite a few smaller projects uh, after like so many months, right? So we decided to like try a few more things. Um, I remember we did a little game in Haskell and we did a few sessions as well in the office. So it took a little bit of a while until we started the next big project. Yeah. So, so, guess like the, the the next big project we worked on was was like super, kind of like the the polar opposite of of, of GB fourth, right? Um, suddenly, like very very high level and 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 uh, very, well, not very, but but like way more structured anyway, and um, something that like compiles to JavaScript. So, <laughs> so we like our our Lisp project, I guess, like the Summary is basically a statically typed Lisp that that compiles to JavaScript, um, which is a bit of a reductive tagline, maybe. But but it kind of summarizes what what the end result is at the moment. What were like the reasons for implementing this kind of language? Like, what's the background story? I think we were both working on the same project back then, uh, and we were experiencing the same pains working with uh, JavaScript and, and, and TypeScript. Mm. Of course, the, the dudes were small, but the, they were interesting enough to make us in, try something else, right? How else could we try to solve those problems? And I think you can see how every functionality that we added to the Lisp had some initial inspiration in, in, in that thing. Yeah. So, so I guess like the, the goal we set kind of for ourselves is like, can we, uh, can we like for ourselves in a way, like make something that's, you know, still compiles to JavaScript so we c- could technically use it for the projects we're working on, uh, if we wanted to, uh, but it's you know in some way like better than than JavaScript. So maybe not 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 like a candidate to replace it like in the world, but at least like that feels to us that like yes, this is a you know better version of what we're working with usually. You mentioned some pain points in both JavaScript and TypeScript. So can you share like some of these that were kind of source of inspiration for the DLisp? I think the one that most JavaScript developers will be familiar with is um, you will see, for example, if you are writing a live backend, it will be very common for you to have this parameter request um, threaded through every function call because you will want to access to it everywhere. Or if you are in the in a web application, you may want to access some configuration or translation values very deep in your like in your 
three of function calls, right? So other languages provide some solution for that. And commonly is to have like this thing called special variables. I think in Scala also you have like implicit parameters. Uh, in Haskell you have a reader monad, but in ha JavaScript that's not an option. Uh, so you actually end up having this parameter. And the problem with that, it requires some non-local changes to the, your code base. So you could think that you don't need that configuration here. So you don't pass the parameter, but later in the future, you will see, oh, now I actually do need the configuration. And you are forced to change not only your function, but every function that calls your function. So it's kind of context in which you execute a program, right? That is correct. And that's how we call it in the list as well. We call it like a context uh, parameter. It's like interesting, like in, in, in React that we also use, like this is kind of like a thing that they solve there in, in, in the similar manner, basically. So in, in React, you have the, you know, the notion of like prop drilling, where you have to pass a prop like all the way down to multiple children. And, and they also introduce the context there. So you can kind of, you know, pass the pass some values like implicitly through throughout the whole context of your application and access it there. Uh, which is a great solution for, I think, like like config and translation sometimes even in front ends. But once you are outside of the React scope, let's say, uh, you don't have that feature anymore. So what all can you accomplish with the context? Can you have like multiple stacks of contexts in your program? I mean, that the life cycle of things vary, of course, between different components in the program, and you surely like need different things from from the context. I think I think we we kept it like deliberately simple right so there's one one sort of a context you can pass down that that gets uh implicitly passed to every every like uh child function call um i, I think like like david knows a bit more about the the feature in, in how it works in other languages and how it's kind of abused in, in other languages as well and then we kind of try to avoid that yeah this is just an example of like dynamic binding in other languages and it has a little bit of a bad fame I think you can control it and it's definitely useful. And you definitely can take a bigger benefit of it if you have a good type system. Um, we decided to keep it with just one context because it would be much simpler to, for example, like serialize this, right? Um, you can see it like in many languages, you tend to have a, like a single piece of a state for the whole application. So we thought it could be a good idea to do the same for the context. However, like we do have um, something called extensible records as well. So that doesn't mean that your context is going to be like a single value. You can make your area of the application of your system to access just a subset of that extensible record that is stored in the context. So they can just cherry pick what they want to look into the context, of course. Yeah, the context sounds really interesting. And at least my experience on Scala is on the limited side, but I have had my share of implicit values there. And I can understand when you, David, said that there might be a bit of bad fame there, at least at some point. They're like a really powerful tool, but maybe like overusing or misusing them is not, not for the benefit of the programmer then in the end. I was interested also like regarding DLISP that how did you end up choosing like a Lisp style of language or syntax for your language? What was the reason in there? One of the reasons, of course, is that as with Forth from the previous project, I think that Lisp is probably one of the simplest languages that you can implement, um, where Forth fulfills its role in the low-level world. Lisp is probably the high-level representation of this idea. 
Okay, how did you start creating the dealist? I'm sure you had some kind of vision there, uh, which kind of guided you, but there's like so much new stuff to learn and how to start learning is probably something you need to figure out. Yeah, I, th- I think in the in the beginning, uh, we just started started like writing down like a wish list of cool features. Uh, like we're, I guess, a bit naive at that point still in, in like how to approach the whole thing. Uh, so... You know, started started just with brainstorming. Like, wouldn't it be cool if if you could do this and this and this? Um, but the but the very first like first steps is is simply like writing a you know Lisp compiler for JavaScript, and then and I guess the first version we had was like very basic and then like doesn't really like reflect what we have at the moment, um, which didn't didn't really like do do anything else except for being a bit of a syntactic sugar on top of like JavaScript. So it's it's pretty manageable and then. Um, I guess like we 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 kind of like had some previous experience in, in in this area, but but like it's it's kind of easy to also like figure out with like a bunch of tutorials like how to how to kind of get to that point. Um, but then I think like the sort of like static typing was like one of the you know main main points that we wanted to make. Like the you know even if we didn't have the other features, at least it would have had that. So so I think like the uh, the kind of like one of the bigger challenges there. Uh, was was kind of implementing this like type system, right? So, kind of like reading reading uh, reading papers on on how to implement the the Hindley Milner like type checking system, and and you know first just trying to read it. Uh, like we we hadn't been reading papers for for a while, and and like you get a bit uh, rusty on 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 the details there. So, so we we took some we we definitely like spent some some nights like just reading a paper and then understanding like how does it work and, and how do we translate this, you know, mathematical equations into into code. So did you have some kind of help in like choosing what kind of papers, for example, you need to read? It's often that I find it very hard to discover what actually are the materials I need to read and understand. I think we, we try many papers and at the end there is this um, evolution in the one that you continue reading reading the ones that are actually easy to understand. So we didn't really have a lot of help, but we just were discarding what we couldn't understand. Basically, I'm focusing on the ones that were easy enough. What about other features of DLISP that you have maybe implemented already? What else is there? Yeah, we, we have this, this like, I think a lot, of, a lot of the features we implemented come from the same issue kind of we experienced in, 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 in working with JavaScript. And that's what David said earlier, like the, you know, if you want to make a small change, uh, like the kind of like local change you make kind of ends up in a sort of a global refactoring of your code. So in, in, in the case of the, the context parameter, it's like, you know, you want you want access to an extra value in a function and you end up having to refactor every parent function of that function. Um, then like we have a similar similar like like problem with uh, when we implemented multiple values, multiple return values, um, where maybe you want to have a function return an extra value um, later on. Uh, and, and, and in JavaScript, that will mean like returning either an array of values or an, an object. And, and if you didn't already return an object on an array, it kind of like means breaking compatibility with every function that uses it, right? So um, you cannot simply add more stuff to the return value and expect everything to work as it did before. So like we, we we looked at like how other other languages like kind of tackle this problem. Um, I believe like Python has a similar approach to like being able to 
return multiple values and and like by default just taking the first one. Um, and we have like like a similar similar approach there that you can return multiple multiple things from a function and and if you don't specify what you need, it just takes the first like the primary return value. And 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 this kind of like like also like causes you to like write codes and 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 like have less to refactor later on if you decide to need more info. Yeah, it really sounds that kind of simplifies things in some scenarios. I have been working quite a lot on Clojure, which is of course a Lisp style language made by Rich Hickey. And in that there is the macro syntax or macro system that you can make use of. So do you have something similar in the DLisp? The macros are a very interesting area in DLisp because the difference, of course, between Clojure and DLisp is the type system. So it would be trivial to add a macro that transforms your code if it's dynamically typed. It would be exactly the same as for DLisp. But if you are in a statically typed language, you may want to have some extra guarantees, right? So you may want to make sure that your macro will be type checked as well, for example. Um, we did some research in that area. We know that, like, for example, like Metal Camel is doing something interesting uh, in that area. And there is also a possibility to do the type checking while you do also the macro expansion. Racket is doing something similar. Uh, and there is this paper, co- paper called um, type system as macros. We are still undecided though, so we have not implemented this yet, but it would be, of course, like one of the next steps. So the deal is still, uh, I assume, under active development and you're planning on new features? Absolutely. Nice to hear. So I know that the point of all this is not to make something that can, for example, use a professional programming work or something like that. It's more about learning new stuff and challenging yourself and spending time with friends. But I have to ask, that is there some kind of use case already for DLisp where you have been actually using it to like create something? Not 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 outside of podcasts, I guess. <laughs> so it's um I I guess like the, the thing that stops us from from using it and and more than just like, you know, people don't know about it. So of course they don't use it in their their professional projects, but the the sort of like interop with 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 vanilla JavaScript is missing more or less. Uh, there is something there, but but uh, unless you want to, you know, uh, sum sum the values of an array together, you know, you cannot really do too much with it at the moment. Uh, it's it's quite it's it's quite advanced in in some way, but kind of the outputs and and how you would use that JavaScript that it generates is is not you know not something you can create web applications with right now. I think that there could be some maybe simpler problems that on the backend side you could use it to solve with. And I see that like your ideas of the context or even the multiple values concept is something really interesting and maybe even something we might see in the more mainstream side of JavaScript at some point. Who knows? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's interesting that you mentioned like the, the, the smaller backend projects because we, we have been kind of going back and forwards between like what should the language become, practically speaking. Like should it be a you know, fully fully fledged language that you can use for whatever you need to use it for, or or should we specialize it like either in like uh, you know creating web interfaces even? Uh, but at some point we we also considered like what if it's a you know library that you can use or like a, a programming language that you can use to create sort of core libraries, right? So the the most important like functions in your application that you want to have uh, statically type checked and 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 very kind of like very simple and, and safe to use basically. Uh, and then use that small part in your bigger application that you would uh, 
write in 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 regular JavaScript basically. Um, so there's a lot of like like IDs that we floated and 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 you know they contradict each other as well quite often. And like adding one feature uh, almost always means that you have to drop another like feature from your wish list. So it's a it's a kind of like a balancing game. Yeah, it truly sounds like it is. Uh, we have been talking quite a lot about learning and challenging yourself to do something totally new. So could you please share with me some of the stories about the first sessions of you two making the DLisp language? I think time, maybe you can explain the one about the uh, misinterpreting the meaning of two words that we assume to be. Yeah, that, you know. that's that, that, that's true. Yeah, like. I, th- I think like like a lot of the a lot of the struggles we we got were not even like from technical nature necessarily. Uh, it was indeed like a, a a paper that we were reading, and 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 the sort of like writing style of a of a scientific paper is a bit different than your average Wikipedia article, right? So we we kind of like glanced over over the fact that that kind of two different terms were used to, uh, in our opinion, like reference the same thing. Uh, so we we kind of like. We we were reading like a simplified version in our in our heads, but it was actually pointing to a very different thing. Um, and it's like a, it kind of takes like a couple of reads before you realize like, huh, maybe this is like an intentional uh, difference in the sentence, and it's not just you know creative writing in this 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 particular case. Um, so these are kind of like like you know a skill that you kind of pick up and 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 like also makes future reading papers easier. Um, I, mean, I think, like apart from the type system, we we did deep dive into like multiple multiple like papers into uh, algebraic effects. I remember like like the extensible records as well. Like that's like uh, based on based on like previous research, right? Like it's not we're not the the scientists in the end. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a very valuable skill, and it's not that hard. I think it's overwhelming for many people, but I would also recommend in this case to just go and try because it opened the door to like many opportunities that. You cannot know otherwise. Yeah, I think that being able to read research papers and scientific publications is so valuable. And it, as you said, opens so many doors that would otherwise maybe remain closed at least somehow. So this has been like super interesting discussion. And I have to admit that this has been so different from everything else we have made for this podcast show up to this point. And I was so happy to have you two here since I think that this is maybe the most valuable thing to know that you are able to like learn new things and you shouldn't be afraid of taking on new challenges with your friends or alone, however you wish. So what would you say to people who are maybe looking for new challenges and like how should they pick their projects and start doing stuff and about sharing and doing them together? It's, it's, it's kind of tricky to give like very general advice there, of course. Uh, different different things work for different people, but I think kind of the key the key like uh, things that make make Amazon hackers what it is is like you know teamwork to to kind of like well both help each, help each other, um, but also kind of like push each other into like like continuing things so you don't give up easily when when when, when something is a bit challenging. It is a big part of it. Um, I'm not sure if if either of us alone would have completed the the GB Force project, for example, um, but it's kind of like like seeing seeing your like the other person like adding something new and getting inspired and and and, and you know like excited about it and, and wanting to to contribute to that again. Uh, that that's a big big thing. And the other is is um, like we we see this this sort of pattern of like create your own something, right? Like if you want to learn how something works, like 
try to just like create it from scratch and it doesn't have to be the same quality or, or have the same feature sets. Um, but it's a, it's a really interesting way of like understanding how something works by just trying it out yourself, um, seeing the, the problems you, you run into and, and, and maybe like doing some like reading and then more theoretical work of like how do, you know, these people solve this problem. Like you don't have to implement or you don't have to overcome every challenge yourself, but kind of getting a bit of a feel of like what is the area about and like how how does it work in real life basically. And I, and I guess like the, the, the key point is like just don't give up if something seems, you know, too challenging. It's like, sure, we, we have some prior knowledge in, in, in some areas, but but when it comes to like the Game Boy or, 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 or designing a, a new programming language, it's like, just see and, and what is kind of the next obvious step that you can take. Um, it's a it's a long long road, but but there's usually one one obvious thing you can do, or research or investigate or, or get help about, and then that's kind of how the the projects also like kind of evolve slowly. Thank you, David and Tyne, for taking your time and joining this podcast episode. And I really recommend all of our listeners to check out the projects made by you and uh, the Amsterdam Hackers Group. Maybe it will be the source of inspiration for many. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you.